Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 115, and today's guest is Isa Watson, founder and CEO of Squad. Isa is one of those guests that just makes you go wow when you hear about a person's background, whether if it's how she skipped two grades in school or the story about how she built her own computer from a very young age. Or how about her experience as a chemist, a VP on Wall Street, a classically trained pianist, and this was all before taking the entrepreneurial journey. Well, she has now taken the entrepreneurial journey, and the name of her company is called Squad, which she calls Social Media 2.0. It's a social community for millennials and Gen Z who are looking to move beyond screens and share real-life experiences together. The company has raised $3.1 million to date by a seed round that was led by Harrison Metal. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Isa's upbringing, including stories of how her parents instilled a foundation of knowledge and curiosity, a walk through her professional and academic history, which spans across various industries and some of the top academic institutions in the world, how she became an entrepreneur and what made her take that leap, the details on Squad, including the story of how the product pivoted and her vision for the company moving forward, the meaning of the word sacrifice for an entrepreneur, how she's so successful with PR despite having no formal PR strategy, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, it's summer and no doubt it's hot out there. However, it's not as hot as the VentureFizz job board. It is on fire. You'll find hundreds of job opportunities at some of the fastest growing tech companies across the New York tech scene. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Isa. Isa, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. So I was uh, doing my research, as I always do, kind of leading up to this interview, and there was uh, so much that I learned about you that we're going to talk about. But uh, there was one particular story that I really, really admired about your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, so your first computer, he didn't just buy you a computer. He actually gave you the parts to build your own computer. So, so what, tell, tell me more about that story. That was fascinating. So my dad is a computer engineer by training. He moved to the U.S., from St. Kitts to study engineering. And my dad, you know, he's, he's a builder at heart, right? And he's, and I think that's where I get it from. But the one thing he always said was, if you don't know how it's, how to build it, you probably shouldn't be using it, which is a little old school. But, um, you know, back in the day, it was like CompUSA in Circuit City. He would take me there and we would buy like the different parts of the computer and then like I would have to build it. And I was like seven years old when I started doing this and he like, I would make mistakes and he'd be like, do you see why I didn't power on? Do you see why you're getting this error message? All right. And I wouldn't make the same mistake. So it was just a really interesting way and a kind of entree into like learning how to build um, and extended into when he bought me my first car when I was 16. Like before he let me drive the car, he, we took up the hood we went through every single part under that hood and he was like, if you ever, your car ever knocks off, like you better look under that hood and be able to tell me what's wrong with that car. So, um, so yeah, I've always just kind of like been a thinker and a builder in that way. <laughs> that is so awesome. I, I could have used the uh, car tutorial. <laughs> I am clueless, but um, now th- there's more to your story. Of course, as you know, growing up as a child, like, you know, you, you're also a classical pianist. So, so what were you like as a child? Kind of, you know, the broader, you know, scope of the story, like where, where did you actually grow up and all that? I grew up, so I, um, I 
since I'm saying kids in the U.S., I spent a lot of time in the islands, but I was born in D.C., and I spent um, mostly middle and high school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, but growing up, I was a weird kid. Like, I was pretty to myself. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't interested in, like, you know, a lot of the things my peers were interested in. I also skipped two grades, so that made it a little difficult. I wow, to- which grades did you, did you skip? I skipped six and 12. So I went to high school at 12. And um, then my I stayed back and went to college for a year before my parents sent me off to real college. So like, um, so it was just like, it was, it was a really intense household. You know, I would say that my homework at school wasn't the biggest of my problems. Like my mom stayed at home until I was about 14. And quite frankly, I would have to finish my homework at school. I would come home to do my mom's homework every single day and that was actually like much harder and so um and was she teaching you like like math and like like the full spectrum of subjects math science reading all that stuff till i like surpassed her and then she would send me to like she would hire like phds and postdocs and i would you know like to be my tutors and stuff like that so she sent me off to the lab at unc chapel hill i was 14 um and they taught me organic chemistry at 14 and i started doing research with them (laughs) Oh my God, you're like a prodigy. <laughs> no, not even. When did you start playing the piano? I started playing the piano at five. So my dad taught me my first song and then my parents were like, ooh, we should stick her in lessons. And so um, I've been playing, I, I was in recitals every year until I was like 17. And then I just kind of played more casually for, let's say the last 10 years. Um, and recently I got back into like formal piano training. Um, I trained with like a really great teacher in New York City. And I'm, I'm, doing two recitals in 2020 and I'm um, auditioning for the international Chopin competition in 2021. Wow. That is amazing. (laughs) Good luck with that. You know, there is a correlation that I I don't have any data or science to back up my statement right now. For musicians and scientists. Absolutely. Like there's lots and lots of people I've had on my podcast that that's their background is, you know, like whatever form of music they were playing, there is a correlation there. Yeah, my my music teacher from um, childhood said that as well. She, because I, I studied chemistry, minored in math, and she was like, "Isa, most of, most of the kids that I have brought up in piano like end up studying STEM." So it is it actually is a little bit of a technical subject when you kind of get into the theory. So I, yeah, it's a really interesting correlation, though. So you have a great academic background, and what I think is fascinating about your story as well is the different industries that you've worked in. It's not like you just kind of came out of school and was in one lane and you kind of worked down that lane and then you had an idea to start a company. So, so let's talk about your first jobs coming out of school and kind of your career trajectory. Yeah. So I've always been an experimentalist. I'm a firm believer in that the decision that you make today, as long as you don't do anything crazy, like murder somebody, the decision you make today or tomorrow, you know, you can move on from that. Um, and so I studied chemistry in college and every summer in college, I, I spent doing different types of research. So I did materials as chemistry one summer at Cornell, I did environmental chemistry one summer at Caltech and I bounced around. I landed inorganic. So my first job, I was a diabetes chemist at Pfizer um, synthesizing glucokinase activators. So I was actually, interestingly enough, one of the youngest published chemists in the world at that point. I was 19. Um, And then I became, you know, I really enjoyed, you know, discovery research, but people who are probably not as familiar with pharma may not realize that when you're a discovery scientist, you literally won't see the impact of your work for at least 20 years. 
the other parts of um, research that has to go to go through in the development phases. And so it was a little lonely, you know, I'm, you know, I'm already like introverted, right? But it was like a little more lonely. And so I said, Oh, let me go to the clinical side. And so I kind of like, hopped ship and went to the development side. I was working on, you know, phase three, phase four uh, clinical trials um, for uh, the neuropathic pain group. And so that was a lot of fun. And then I was like, oh, I want to do more impacts and I want to like be on the business side driving business decisions. Um, and that's when I decided to, um, well, actually, that's when I decided to get my master's in pharmacology at Cornell and then I went to get my MBA. So <laughs> it was a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> you're not one that just likes to sit around and just kind of kind of relax <laughs> no I just kind of like hop here and there I'm like yeah I learn by doing that's the one thing I'll say I learn by doing I don't learn by like listening as much now did you get your MBA before JP Morgan or was it after JP Morgan no it was before JP Morgan and that's probably like why so when I the funny thing about it is that when I um went to business school I was like oh well because I'm a scientist and because you know, all I know is lab research. Only pharma companies will want to hire me. And the funny thing about it is I got recruited much more broadly than that from like, you know, top three consulting companies and, you know, different myriad of investment banks. And JP Morgan originally was looking to hire me as a um, healthcare investment banker. Mm -hmm. So that was actually kind of how I even got into the Wall Street world. Got it. Now, what was the, the experience like at MIT Sloan? Oh, I loved MIT. I think MIT is the best business school on the planet. This is not an ad. Um, the reason is, you know, I think that business school is so much more of a fit thing than anything else, right? Um, and, you know, when I visited, it was just such a phenomenal place. And I think MIT has, like, an amazing balance between some of the smartest people but some of the most humble people. And it's really hard to get that combination for a lot of, for a big group of people, right? And so, um, you know, even being in Cambridge, you know, talking about my experimental approach, like I actually took a lot of classes like, at MIT at the Institute. I was taking like technical classes and like hanging out with the undergrads and stuff like that. And it was just a lot of fun. And so I, their, their motto is men's, um, men's at Manus, so mind and hand. So like learning by doing. So it just kind of fit in with like how I just learned in general, but it's an amazing place. Now, MIT Sloan is one of the top B schools. So what, um, what advice would you give to someone that's trying to get into, you know, one of the top B school programs out there? Um, I would say the first thing that people need to understand is that it's important to project yourself. Um, I found myself, you know, trying to almost assimilate to other, like, assumptions that I had about what a typical business school student looked like, right? Because the idea is that business schools are trying to fill their classrooms with like diverse people. You know, I, I, I don't think there were any other, I can't recall any other chemists in my class, like any research chemists, right? But that was a, that was a benefit for me that I had tried to like subside a little bit. So I would say definitely, um, you know, be yourself. I think that, you know, obviously like your GMAT is like the only thing you have control over now because your undergrad grades are gone. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, try to like, do as well as you can on the GMAT, but, and then the recommendations as well. But I really think that, you know, business, the power of business is really in storytelling, right? Some of the, some of the best business people are the great storytellers and they probably would have never 
gone to like a Harvard or MIT or Stanford. And so like, um, I think that really dedicating time and being, you know, conscious of like the story that you're telling and how you're showing up in the application is actually way more important than people think. Yeah. And then afterwards, uh, you did join, join JP Morgan. So what was your role there? And, and what did, you know, working at JP Morgan teach you? Um, JP Morgan was such an interesting place. It's first of all, it's so big. So there was, I just had such a myriad of experiences and, um, it was my first like real business job. Like if I think about it, it was the first job where I had to wear like a suit or a business casual to work. Right. Um, and I started out at JP Morgan in a management leadership program. So Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JP Morgan and, you know, obviously is such a phenomenal leader. Um, he kind of had this vision of creating this general, general management program to create more general managers. So Jamie kind of grew up in his career as a general manager and he was kind of felt that a lot of people were growing up very niche. Like I picked mid market healthcare stocks for 50 years and that's how, you know, I made my career. So basically what I did is I jumped around different divisions, mostly supporting a lot of those, you know, senior leaders kind of being their key kind of strategy and execution person. So all the way from like helping to expand and roll out Chase private clients to moving over to Hong Kong to help build retirement products for some of our Asian markets coming back to the U S um, you know, I, I, my role was one that was really oriented around like strategy and execution. So building a strategy and like building bringing the right people together to execute those, those large strategies. And so um, my most recent role, I was vice president of strategy and on the chase side of the, the bank, um, leading a billion dollar uh, digital product effort for, you know, for chase. And so that was kind of what I did. So did you always kind of in the back of your head think, you know, someday I want to start my own company because that's eventually what you did. So what, what, what made you make that leap of faith? I never ever thought I would be an entrepreneur. Like if you asked me five, six years ago, um, I was gonna, you know, rise up the ranks, make partner, whatever that meant. And then I was gonna like go run for governor. Um, and <laughs> that was gonna be, and then I was gonna retire and buy a house in like, you know, Martha's Vineyard, right? And so that, that was my life. Um, and I stayed away from entrepreneurship at MIT as well. I was like, you guys, you know, you can have that. You can have the whole being broke and struggling life. Um, but the reality is that I'm very much an entrepreneur. And whether it was Pfizer or whether it was JP Morgan, I mostly created like the roles that I was in, I was, I, I was really good at identifying opportunities and saying, Hey, this is something that is really critical to the business and that I am, you know, equipped to focus on and I can do it and let me build that and let me move on and let me build that. And let me move on. And so always been attracted to big problems. The thing about leaving JP Morgan was that I came across a problem that I was super passionate about where there was no real space to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I like, you know, had to have a great, you know, had a great time at the firm. Um, but it was like, I really wanted to do this. I know if I didn't do it now, then I wasn't going to do it in like 10 years from now. And so that was kind of my emphasis for leaving JP Morgan. And, and what was the problem that you recognized that was like this dying need to solve? It was all about community. So and it, it was a problem that kind of it was the first problem that I had really come across that bridged my personal life with my professional life. And so on the personal side, you know, my, I used to joke when I was a kid, I said, you know, mom, dad, our house is like 
the community center of Chapel Hill because everyone's always here. Like, do they have their own homes to go to? Um, and the way that my parents just built and cultivated community just in, in, you know, their local area was just so powerful. And as a kid, I didn't really pay attention to it, but it's created such lasting impacts on people. And, you know, at JP Morgan, I was in a position where I got to see so many different parts of the bank. And, you know, even at the branch level, JP Morgan had like 5,000, 4 to 5,000 branches at that time, um, got to experiment a lot with that. And the one thing that stood out for all the high performing places was that there was very strong employee community and grassroots community. And it was, that was that, like, that, that light that clicked off. That was like, wow, you know, I'm not the creepy millennial that thinks that community is like really important to just excelling in your career and doing well and showing up, you know, really good to work and actually materializing in returns for a company. And so it was just kind of like that aha moment where I saw it in the professional sense where I was like, holy crap, like I've been saying this and people have been telling me I'm crazy, so I'm going to go do it. And so that was kind of like, my my moment so so what what was the original uh you know c- company that you built like like that, that the aha moment that led you down the path of actually starting something what was that kind of first iteration of what you were building yeah so we were formally called invested um so we rebranded to squad but invested was essentially an enterprise software tool for companies to help create strong community among their employees and so what we this, the software almost operated like a meetup.com for companies where, you know, Billy can put up a happy hour, Molly can put up a lunch and learn, um, Rebecca could put up, you know, whatever activity. And it was available to everyone in the company. And it was just a way for people to like naturally meet, like you work in marketing, you're probably not going to naturally talk to an engineer. And so that actually, you know, was a product that did really well, um, you know, our customers were like walmart.com and Vivo and SeatGeek. And we had like really strong brands um, that were using the enterprise software, have, you know, full integrations with SSO, messaging, et cetera. But, how did you know, like how to go about building a product like that? And then getting first customers to, you know, the, the early adopter types, how did you go about just getting traction? The first customer was definitely the hardest. So um, I think WeWork may have been, or no, maybe there were a second, but um, so building a product, first of all, I think that a lot of times when people think about starting companies, the first thing they think about is how do I raise capital? And the first thing you should actually think about is how do I get traction with like, how do I get kind of like some scrappy traction? Um, and so we actually just like built a product originally, like just using mockups and then just gave that to people and just watched them use it. And we were like, okay, they did this, they did that. We didn't think that they do this. And then what we said is, okay. <clears throat> We're going to actually like build a product now. And I kind of lucked up with um, some of our earlier customers. I, people always tout, you know, people always talk about the importance of relationships, which I think are super important. But I think as an entrepreneur, like what's more important than relationships is your persistence. And so I, I had reached out to, um, I think I had over 300 no's you know, in, in the enterprise space before I got that one big yes. And that one big yes happened to be walmart.com. And so it's like, so you got, you got like this, you know, obviously the biggest, the, you know, the largest of the large out there to sign up after those 300 no's. Now, yeah. you ever have that moment where you're like, Phew, I had it pretty good at JP Morgan. What have I done? I'm out <laughs> here hustling with this product. Everybody's telling me no. 
or did you always just have that mindset of, you know what, I'm just going to keep running through walls because I know this has value and eventually I'll get that yes. You know, to be honest with you, I had no idea I had that many no's until recently when Eat Magazine asked me for like how many times I got rejected. And I looked in HubSpot. It was like the same time our HubSpot was expiring. And so I was like, holy crap. Like that's actually, I went through, I'm like, oh my God, it's super true. I remember this person. I remember that person. I'm like, so I think I just almost like ignored how many no's I was getting um, just for like my own sanity. Um, and yeah, I did like, I, I had a good at JP Morgan. I know that too. When I look at my bank account, like, you know, <laughs> so, um, I don't ever wish that I didn't do what I did though. Like I'm having a lot of fun. I've learned lessons that I would have never been able to learn in such a big environment. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's people don't talk about it, but it's definitely much more of a sacrifice than people you know, and then people realize, and that was one thing I did not know when I left JP Morgan originally. So what do you mean by the sacrifice? <clears throat> Being an entrepreneur is a huge personal and professional sacrifice. So on the, <clears throat> on the professional side, you know, I thought that, okay, I, I, if you look at my resume, like I went to Cornell, I went to MIT. So people should know that I'm like, I have some level of intellect. I did very well at JP Morgan, got promoted like several times. So people should know that I know how to get stuff done. But when I became an entrepreneur and I was like, oh yeah, I had JP Morgan, I had MIT, blah, blah, blah. No one cared. They were like, but what about your company? You know? And so that credibility did not transfer with me. And so I basically had to start from scratch. Um, and building that. And I, I had, it took me two years to really penetrate Silicon Valley in a meaningful way. And so there's, there's that professional sacrifice. And then there's a personal sacrifice of, you know, your life changes quite a bit. And the way that you spend your energy has to change in order for you to build a really successful company. And, you know, I haven't even been able to maintain, you know, my friendships or invest in certain friendships that like, I wanted to, which have kind of fallen by the wayside, right? And I had to prioritize my child, which is the company. Um, and so I think there are those kind of balances of personal and professional sacrifices that entrepreneurs don't talk about, probably because it's too painful. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, you just see all everyone raising capital and getting unicorn valuations. You're like, man, I can do that. Right, exactly. Well, let's talk about Squad. So what was the evolution from, uh, you know, the uh, invested to Squad today? Like there was kind of a transformation that led you down this path. Yeah. So, um, and it's funny too, because we raised our round of funding on invested. Um, but essentially, when we did the enterprise, when we built the enterprise software, we were kind of seeing how people were using it. We had really strong adoption too. So we went, you know, our at our companies between 30 and 50% of our of the employees at the company use squad every month to sign up for things. And so that was, is really significant when you think about optional enterprise software, having about 10% on average, you know, monthly active users, um, at the company. And so, um, you know, what we did is we said, all right, well, we want to learn as much as we can about like what it is people want to do. Why, what, what makes people want to get together? And so we created this community on the side called Squad in New York City. And we just like would host like 
simple stuff that didn't cost any money, like happy hours, or even we had like a panel series that we, that we posted, that we hosted too. And what happened is that that community just started to grow significantly. And they were using the same enterprise software that like the people and the enterprises were, but they didn't have like the SSO and security stuff, you know, attached to that, attached to that version. And so what we found I dug a bit deeper because I was like, there's this fire. It's like, it's like, it's almost like you're sitting in your office and there's smoke in the trash can and you're like, let me go check that out. Um, and so what, what the thing that we learned was that these people were almost always under 30. They were, um, like high achieving, like educated people, but they, they had a hard time like making friends in real life. And they really felt like squad had finally kind of cracked the code on like being able to have and foster like authentic in-person, you know, event experiences and, you know, also relationships. And so, um, you know, I, I dug a bit deeper into that. Right. And it's a founder. Sometimes some people may not agree with me, but like, there's an intuition thing that a founder has that we just have to act on, right? So I have like tens of thousands of users, you know, on this like enterprise platform that's like growing and we can scale it and we're on track for a great series A. And then I'm like, you know what? Scratch all of that. We're going to cancel all that. We broke up with our enterprise customers, cancel the contracts, and then we canceled the whole web application. And then I was like, you know, we're building a mobile app, got the mobile app out in like five weeks. Um, it was like literally insane. And I'm, sh I'm sure people think that I'm crazy, but it was just such a like crazy intuition of like this being such, you know, it's not too different. We're still cultivating community, but the reality is that in the Instagram world and the Snapchat world of social media and how people are really connecting, what they're yearning for is the ability to actually really connect. And the more lonely they're becoming using social media. And like, we were like, holy shit, this is huge. My market size, my investors love kind of 10X, right? So we were kind of almost in a billion dollar market before. Now we're in like a 10 to $30 billion market. And so um, I always call squad like social media 2.0 revolution, but it was, it was literally kind of almost like in a moment I said, boom, scratch that moving over here. Let's go. And it's what you're building is important <laughs> because, yeah. you know, uh, I have a daughter who's 15 and, you know, she communicates with her friends through Snapchat and, um, you know, my wife and I are always like, why don't you just go see the person and have this, you know, and so you're just always constantly, you know, asking yeah. your child to go see the person in real life and have it, or even FaceTime instead of just purely, you know, on Snapchat. So yeah. uh, I think it's really important. So now, so, so what is kind of the vision that you have with squad and like, what's the traction so far? Yeah, I actually, when I talk about squad, I talk about it and call it the social media 2.0 revolution. I think it's really going to be the way that people connect. The pendulum has swung super far on the like internet right, is going to come back. Because at the end of the day, like, we can make advancements in technology, but we'll never not be human, you know? Um, and so you'll never, like, just be married to someone via AI. Like, there, there are some limits there, too. And so um, essentially, we launched a squad in, like, late April, May. And then we actually didn't even announce it. Like, for a minute, we didn't announce it. So we had you know, we went back to like 100 people that came into squad like first month. And then the next month, we had 1200 people on the wait list. And then the following month, which is kind of where we are now, we're like almost 6000 people on the wait list. And so um, we're building up and letting people in squad based on, you know, 
like the supply and demand, right? But, you know, also we used to be just application-based. We used to say, oh, fill out this short application and we'll let you in squat. And that became too overwhelming when it was like 6,000 people. And so um, now we actually just released a feature last week, which has been like taken off, where if you get referred by two existing squat members, you automatically get into squat. And so um, it's almost like, who do you know who can get me in type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but that's like a more normal and like, less operational heavy way to kind of unlock our growth. But, you know, when I think about the vision, like I said, um, you know, we pull people together. You can, it's a very simple app. You pull people together. You can start, sort through, sorry, different event experiences in the app. You can sign up um, for them. You can only see the people who you've already been to an event with if they're going. So what we don't want to do is you don't want to say, oh, you know, Susie Smith is going and she is a VC and I want to pitch her in advance. Mm. Um, but what happens is that when you attend a squad experience, you unlock access to every single person that was at that experience in your squad community. So you can message That's cool. them. You can be, but it's cause, cause like building a, a network in real life. Right. And so, and then once you connect with those people, you can see them, you know, kind of what events they're attending. So we really wanted it to be like super genuine and authentic, but like really driven by, you know, I connect with you in person first and now you're cool. And I would know if you were going to an event like later or not. And if I am accepted, is there like a membership fee, like a yearly membership or how does that work? Yeah. So squad, we, um, we charge a monthly subscription fee and it's $10 a month just to get access to the community. And then you have a number of events. Some are going to be free and some are going to be, some are going to cost money, you know, all the way up to, like a panel series, certain happy hours, those are free. But, you know, we have this partnership with a company where they do private chef six course dinners, um, which our members love. And those always are like at capacity. And those are like a hundred bucks. But the average, um, the average event is in the ballpark of like 25 bucks. So this is fascinating because this is a direct correlation of the story you told earlier of when you were a child, your house was the community where people would gather. So you're, you're doing this now as a business, building yep. community. Do the app. <laughs> now, you talked about, you know, you raised capital um, and it was originally for your invested company. Huh? So what was it like when, um, well, I'm going to ask two questions. One, what was it like raising capital as a first time founder? And then two, what was it like when you had to tell your investors like, hey, the vision that I raised capital on, we're not going to be doing that. We're going to do this instead. Yeah. Um, so on the first side, as a first time founder, so Silicon Valley is such, such like an insular community. Um, I, was, I was a first time founder. I don't look like most people in Silicon Valley. And then... I was a solo founder. So those there, there's so many strikes that I have. <laughs> there were certain people that wouldn't, they wouldn't even talk to me because they were like, we don't have a co-founder. We're not interested. And I was like, that's fair. But um, over, over the course of like two years, what I did is I, I had well over a few hundred meetings um, with people that were just kind of in the network tangential to the network or that could like lead up to the network. And it was like meeting after meeting. Um, of just people that were, I just wanted to get involved with like what we were doing and ask advice from us. So I wasn't, I started networking before I really needed to go up and like raise the full, um, raise it like full round of funding. And two years later, um, about a year and a half later, I had, when I 
started to actually really pitch our seed round, which is like a three, three million dollar seed round. Um, I had one of my, you know, kind of pre-seed investors kind of be my quarterback. Right. Um, and this and basically what he did is we put, I put together a deck. We went out and tested it with people with maybe four, four VCs that weren't the top of my list VCs. Right. Got feedback from them. I got sent to almost every partner meeting from those four pitches and got one, one ding. And he said, all right, now you're ready. Like based on that feedback. So I went and I pitched to like another 40, 35 um, VCs. And we ended up getting a term sheet from our first choice investor. So that is actually not something that generally happens. And so we were kind of lucky there, but our first choice investor who also really liked us is Harrison metal and they're in San Francisco and the, uh, partner is Michael Deering. And so I think that, you know, when it came to selecting, you know, a lead and putting a round together, um, what I, the, the partner and the investor that's going to be on your board and kind of in there with you is more important than like a lot of other things, right? Um, if you're not meshing with the right person at like a Sequoia or, or a 16, you know, maybe at a tier two firm, you have the right, right person. I will go with that tier two firm. Like we kind of looked up and had like kind of the, one of the best C firms and like the best mesh, but like, I really do feel like it was still, I still decided based on Michael. Um, and so kind of addressing your second question of, well, how did this transition happen? Like Michael has been with me through this whole journey and you know, I'm, I'm lucky that he's been really supportive because the reality is that, you know, what I would, I would take back kind of data and I would say, this is what's happening. And this is the kind of what's going on with squad. And this is like, my God, this is what people are saying. And then, you know, I went, I went, I remember I was in San Francisco and I had, we had breakfast and I, had, I was like, these are three options. We can continue to go enterprise and build squad. And this is, I mean, sorry, build invested. This is like what that would look like. We can scratch that and build the consumer product squad and i showed him kind of pros and cons and like you know and he was like what does your gut tell you i was like my gut says that we need to go build squad and he was like go do that and he was like and don't be afraid to cancel your your enterprise you know customers because i was like oh that's revenue right everyone's revenue um and so like having that kind of support for me um was just like so it was really important to kind of get me through because as a founder, you're almost like breaking up with a product too. Like uh, there's a lot invested in that, like relationships. Um, I was breaking up with like my enterprise product and so moved over, but he was, he was actually supportive and I was more scared and terrified about his response than like I really needed to be. So it was kind of a pleasant surprise. Yeah. So well, it's a good lesson learned of again, selecting the right investor who through whatever you know ups and downs or whatever the, you know, future beholds that they're going to be supportive and allow you as the entrepreneur with the instincts to, you know, drive towards that right vision that will ultimately create hopefully an, an outcome for the investor. Right. Exactly. Now, the other thing that you are a master of is PR, right? So when I do my research, I really on, don't feel that way. That's so funny. Oh my God. So when I, when I, when I do my research, I start off in Google, right? And just put the person's name and I'll find something here and there. When I put your name, I saw Watson, I got like a whole laundry list. Um, so, so how have you been so successful getting, uh, you know, out there, um, you're speaking at conferences, you talked about, you know, Inc, you know, there's Forbes, there's Entrepreneur, there's all these major publications that uh, you've been featured in. So, so how did you go about kind of building that 
foundation of having these publications cover you? You know, it's, it's really funny you say that. And I'm, I'm so tickled um, because I didn't, I don't have like a PR strategy and I haven't had necessarily a PR strategy. What the one thing I'll say is that, you know, I got the first kind of feature with Forbes and I forget, I mean, not Forbes, Fast Company. Like I forget how that happened. Someone tweeted at a writer at Fast Company, me, and they were like, you need to talk to her. And the writer at Fast Company reached out to me. And from then, um, I didn't even know how to really tell this, my story really. Like I, I kind of, I feel like I kind of grew into that over time, but, um, I think that it's one of those things. It was almost like the networking. It was like do one thing and then that kind of evolves into other things. And you're building your network of people who actually have access to different opportunities. And one thing that I tell my, like my investor, my supporters or whoever, um, I'm not, I'm a, like I said, I'm, I'm an introvert. You may not be able to tell it now, but I'm actually a more shy person. Like now, if I was in my natural habitat, I probably wouldn't talk as much and I'd probably be wrapped up with a book or in a lab somewhere, you know? And so um, even like speaking and putting myself out there, it was a little bit intimidating. Um, but I knew when, the one thing that happened was that I saw that, you know, the business would yield positive returns from like, from that. People were like interested in my story and like my background and, you know, how I got, you know, to where I am. And so, you know, I think that with the PR side, it was just kind of, I w I've been responding to inbound things and I really haven't, I, I have yet to like fully, fully execute a strategy. And then on the, um, on the, like, even the speaking side, um, you know, what happened is, what happens is that the combination of two things, like people reach out to me directly, or I'll have like an entrepreneur friend who couldn't make it. And they're like, but you should talk to Isa. Mm -hmm. And then that's how those happen. And so it's, I like, it's probably one of the more disorganized things in my life right, <laughs> right now, or at least so I feel. Well, it is like one of those things when you kind of get into that in the circle with the writers or the people that are hosting events that are just looking for, you know, entrepreneurs that can speak well and tell their story well, like that, then they just start coming naturally where you get these requests as like almost like a funnel. So yeah. Uh, now, what do you think has been the hardest part of being an entrepreneur? Uh, to be honest with you, I think being the hardest part of an entrepreneur, the hardest part of being an entrepreneur, I think has actually not much to do with the business. Um, the hardest part of being an entrepreneur is like mostly mental and emotional, you know, like I, um, you know, one of the things that since my dad died, you know, my mom and I have always been very close and, you know, I keep a few friends like very close, but my mom, you know, she thinks that we went to a joint therapy session. She came to one of my therapist sessions. I go to my therapist every week. And I said to her, you know, the reason I asked her to come to therapy with me was because I, I, I wasn't feeling like super supported as an entrepreneur, right? And, you know, she said in the therapy session, she was like, Isa, you know, you are my child that always figures it out. You, I don't have to worry about you. Like, you just get it done. Right. And the, the thing that she was responding to is because like I had just raised capital and everyone should like people were probably like, oh, my God, you should just be so ecstatic. But I just started to feel this pressure that like just kind of made my heart like just slow down, you know. Um, and I called my mom and I was like, I am the most stressed out I've ever been in my life. And she goes, all right, girl, I, that's you'll figure it out. I'm about to go clean my house. 
And I was like, really? Like, can I just have like a little bit of validation or something? And so, um, you know, to be honest with you, building the one thing that my therapist mentioned to me was that, you know, you're going to your traditional kind of go-tos in your life and your prior life for like help, but you have to like actually strategically identify who can give you the support that you need in that time. And I've made a lot of founder friends in this journey that have been super helpful for me. And so um, even building, knowing how to build the support around me um, to be able to just be vulnerable and, you know, feel like I have a solid foundation, that is how I show up every day, you know, positively and in a great mood and ready to tackle the world. I think if I didn't have that foundation, I can't run a company. And so I just, I really think that the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur really boils down to like your mental and emotional health and being able to like sustain that um, and identify when you need help. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's an unconventional answer. Some people will say hiring. Some people will say raising capital. Some people will say like marketing and growth. I think it's all bullshit. I think it really boils down to your mental and emotional health. And that's, so that's another like dark secret that is part of entrepreneurship that founders don't talk about because you are supposed to be, I've got the answers. I'm driving hard. We're crushing it, right? There's all these like things that come along with entrepreneurship that, um, there was a story a while, like, I mean, this is going back a few years ago of, uh, there's an entrepreneur in Boston that was deeply depressed and, and, but on the outside you would think, wow, they're killing it. Their business is crushing it. But, uh, and, and he finally came public and it was one of these stories where like, wow, no one ever talks about that part of, of entrepreneurship. So. And if people did, we would feel less lonely. <laughs> <laughs> You'd all find each other and be like you know, supportive. Like it's exactly. okay. <laughs> so one of the things I thought was interesting is, uh, you know, I think it, maybe it's on your LinkedIn or on your website. You're like, you've never had a cup of coffee. Wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. So you'd never, ever like just, you pass a coffee shop every block in New York city. So it's impossible to escape. So how have you escaped it? You know, when my dad was alive, as a, as a little girl, he, every morning, he's like, Isaac, make me my cup of coffee. I'm like, okay, dad. And it was like, it was, now I'm just, now I'd be like, oh my God, dad, that's sexist. But like, as a kid, I just really enjoyed like doing something for my dad, like every morning, right? And I remember, he doesn't know this, so like, you know, <laughs> good that he's not hearing this, but I would stick my finger in his coffee and I would lick my finger. And I was like, that is disgusting. That tastes so gross. I don't understand why anyone drinks this. And then I was like, you know what? I was like 15. I was like, maybe I like, maybe it was, it was like bad coffee. And then I stick my finger in it again. I was like, this is disgusting. And so um, I've just never, and my dad told me, he was like, you know, as soon as you get a real job, you're going to start drinking coffee. And I was like, doubt that. I am a tea drinker. I'm Caribbean as well. But um, I've, I just, I don't like coffee. I don't like it. And people, I don't know, it's, it is strange to people that I've never had a cup of coffee. Yeah, like I, I, I guess I was kind of along the lines of what your dad said. Like, never drank it as a kid, college, uh, first job out of school, didn't drink it. But then all of a sudden, I was working in in Boston, and yeah, you know, I just got a bagel and a coffee. I'm like, wow, this is really tasty. <laughs> so, and then the rest, you know, I just you know obviously need that ritual every morning. So, yeah, but uh, very good. Well, Isa, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great things you're doing uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, and all the, the great advice that you shared with our audience. No, thanks so much for, for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and I hope, I hope it's been helpful or it'll be entertaining. It's, it was a lot of help, and uh, obviously, best of luck with Squad, because it is uh, you know, something that is needed in this digital era.
Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.